0: We turn now in our study of the book of Exodus into what may be the most well-known portion of the book, the 10 plagues. Nowhere actually in the text is it described as plagues. The the author here, Moses, describes them as signs and wonders, but we all know them as plagues because that's just what we've known them as. So we're going to call them plagues from here on out. And in these 10 plagues, there's different things that come to our mind. What comes to your mind when you think of the 10 plagues? That wasn't, don't just start shouting it out. That wasn't, it was a rhetorical question. When you think of the ten plagues, I was talking asking somebody earlier this week that question. Typically, it feels like individual plagues start to pop up in people's minds. Think of the ten plagues, you think of which one you wouldn't want to go through. The people talked about how they didn't want to go through frogs. The, flag, the plague of frogs, terrified of frogs, can't imagine frogs being everywhere. Not just being everywhere, but as uh, God tells in Exodus chapter 8, that the frogs will come up and go into your palace, into your bedroom, and on your bed. So down underneath your sheets. That's not going to be your spouse's toes. It's going to be some frogs crawling around underneath there. Not only then in your beds, but it will go, they will go into your ovens and into your kneading bowls. That's the plague of the frogs. Somebody said, that's, that's the one that pops into my mind. Someone else uh, said the one that pops in their mind is boils, the kind of the personal nature of them having to go through this personal kind of pain and sickness, going to the boils, and other people spouted out kind of other individual ones. But what comes into your mind when we think of the plagues? Uh, again, if you've grown up in church, you've heard these. You've seen them on the felt board. You've gone through the Sunday school lessons of the plagues. And I think that there is a danger for us, if you've grown up in church at all, that when you think of the ten plagues, we look at each of them individually. And in doing so, I think we miss what God is doing with them as a whole. Because God is up to something here. And so what I want us to do here this morning is rather than taking the next 10 weeks and going through each plague individually, I want us to hopefully go through all of them today and to see the forest rather than getting lost amongst the trees. I want us to see what God is up to as a whole so that we can see what he's doing here in these four chapters. So we're not going to read all four. We're going to be kind of bouncing around a little bit this morning. Um, And so if you've got your Bibles, you can go ahead and flip open. We'll be in Exodus chapter 7, starting in verse 14, going all the way to the end of chapter 11. So covering all 10 of the plagues. And really, I think the point of what God is doing, we sang it in a song earlier. That song, How Great the Glory of Our God, I think the opening lines, that first stanza of that song captures exactly what God is up to in the 10 plagues. And it's this, that nothing in this world could match your beauty. No king of earth could ever wear your crown. All of your creation bows in wonder how great the glory of our God. As I think summed up, that's the message of the 10 plagues. Pharaoh is doing his best to wear a crown But there is no king of earth that can ever wear the crown of the king of kings. There is no country that could offer the beauty of God and his kingdom. And all of God's creation is bowing in wonder to the greatness of the glory of our God. Because up until this point, again, God had just made himself known to Moses in the burning bush back in Exodus chapter 3 of what his covenant name is, that he is the great I Am, Yahweh, revealing his name and his purposes, making good on his promises back in Genesis. And we see then Moses called to go to Pharaoh. And Moses goes to Pharaoh in Exodus chapter 5 and has that first confrontation with Pharaoh and tells Pharaoh, hey, Pharaoh, uh, let my people go. Let them go. Let them go to the wilderness. Time has come. And do you remember Pharaoh's response in chapter 5 verse 2? He looks at Moses and he asks, this, who is the Lord? Who is this God that you're telling me about? I, I hadn't heard of him. So if he's so great, how come I hadn't heard of him? Because I'm kind of a big deal. Don't know if you know that. I'm kind of a God myself. My library is filled with many leather-bound books. I'm kind of a big deal. Who is the Lord, Moses? And who is the Lord that I should obey him by letting Israel go? I don't know the Lord. And besides, I'm not letting Israel go. This is Pharaoh's question at the beginning of this narrative. Who is the Lord? And the ten plagues is God's answer to that question. Who am I? I am the Lord. And this was his purpose. We read it last week. I want us to look again. The purpose in answering that question, we see in Exodus chapter 9, verses 15 and 16. This is right on the, uh, in the middle of the seventh plague of uh, God sending hail. God says this, by now I could have stretched out my hand and struck you and your people with a plague and you would have been obliterated from the earth. God said, listen, Pharaoh, understand, I didn't need 10 plagues to get warmed up. It's not like I had to kind of get some momentum going so I could really bring the heat later on. All I needed was a thought, and Egypt is wiped off the face of the earth. I don't need 10 plagues. Here's the reason why he tells us, however, I have let you live for this purpose. Here's God's purpose in these 10 plagues and why there's 10 of them and what he's doing. To show you my power and to make my name known on the whole earth. God's purpose in answering that question, who is the Lord? His purpose of these 10 plagues is to make and reveal his power to Pharaoh, to Egypt, and to make his name known, not just in a bush in the wilderness, not just to a people enslaved in Egypt, but to make his name known throughout the entire earth. This is what God is up to in these 10 plagues. And so again, you see these 10 plagues as God goes through, uh, these are the ten. It begins with God turning the Nile into blood. Second, then, again, he sends the frogs into the kneading bowls and the beds and, and everywhere else. Turns then into gnats that fill and cover the sky. Later, flies come next. What's the difference between gnats and flies? They're both annoying. I don't know. We live in Florida. We got all sorts of them that fly around here. But there's a distinction here: is these both come and fill the skies. Next, then, livestock are struck dead in the fields. Boils then, uh, next, sixth plague. Boils then overtake people in Egypt. Later then, God sends the greatest hailstorm in history. Lightning, hail come raining down. Next, locusts come in and begin to eat all of the crops in Egypt. Ninth, the sun is turned to darkness for three days. And finally, Passover feast as the firstborn in every house would be killed unless there was a lamb that would die in their place. We'll look more at that next week. But this was, the, was predicted in chapter 11. These are the 10 plagues. And God here is up to making his power revealed and making his name known. And there's one overarching point that God's wanting to see here is he's wanting people to see that he and he alone is the true God. This is the dominant theme in the 10 plagues. He is the true God. This is the first thing that we'll see, the first point that we'll look at here. And in seeing that he is the true God, there are different aspects of him being the true God that he also gets into in these 10 plagues. The other three things we're looking at today, there's four points. The dominant theme is the first one, that he alone is the true God. Second, that he is also the mighty creator. Third, he is the holy judge. And fourth, he is the merciful savior. Those are the four things that God is showing us in these ten plagues. And all of them kind of fall underneath that dominant theme of the first one, that he is the true God. As the true God, he's the mighty creator, holy judge, merciful savior. So what do we mean by this? Well, first again, diving into first. God wanting to reveal in these ten plagues to Egypt that he and he alone is the one true God. In Exodus chapter 8, verse 10, this is what Moses says. These things happened so that you may know that there is no one like our God. God wants to show that he is different from every other God. And in particular, the, all the gods and deities of Egypt. Egypt had like hundreds and hundreds of gods. They, they were just swarming with gods. They had all sorts of gods. God was wanting to come and make sure that his name was known over and against all the gods in Egypt. We see this in Exodus chapter 12, verse 12. This is what God says. I will execute judgments against all the gods of Egypt. Later in Numbers 33, verse 4, God says the same thing, that the Lord executed judgment against their gods. That here in the 10 plagues, this isn't just Egypt versus Israel. This isn't Moses versus Pharaoh. This is God against gods. And the prize is Israel. This is what we see kind of laying out, and God's wanting to make it abundantly clear. All the gods of the earth are idols, and they fall before me, the one true God. And God kind of goes toe-to-toe with each of these gods in each of the ten plagues. As these plagues are not only judgment against Egypt, but also going against particular gods and deities in Egypt. All right, we saw kind of a, a foretaste of this. You know, a lesson, God's teaching a lesson in these ten plagues. We saw the syllabus last week uh, at the end of chapter 7. It's kind of this prologue to the plagues as you saw Aaron throw down his staff. It becomes a snake. Pharaoh calls his magicians. They throw down a staff. They become a snake. You got two big snakes there. God's snake then swallows Egypt's snakes, though. This is a preview of what is to come, that Egypt's gods are going to be destroyed by the one true God. As his power is revealed and his name is then known. And in the ten plagues, this pattern continues. There's not always a direct correlation to a specific God in Egypt. We don't entirely know. But I want you to hear some of these gods in Egypt and the way in which these plagues show God's power and his dominance over these plagues in Egypt. First, you have the Nile. Happy was uh, not just the friend of Spider-Man and assistant of Tony Stark. Uh, Happy was also the God of fertility and closely associated with the Nile. Because with the Nile, if if the Egyptians had no Nile, then they had no life. There was no Egypt. The Nile River was uh, paramount for transportation, irrigation, for drinking water, for setting the calendar, for food. All of it flowed through the Nile. It was the source of life for Egypt. And happy was the God of fertility. It was associated with bringing life then through the Nile. And so imagine for us today, not simply that gas prices are soaring. Imagine we didn't have gas. Imagine that our electricity and plumbing were cut off. Imagine that the stock market crashes and grocery store runs out of food. And you may say, well, you know, my aunt shared an article on Facebook I saw that That all may be happening next week. (laughs) Friends, if we put ourselves in that situation, it's total chaos as there's now no way for this river that brought life. It's now been turned to blood. And God is showing that he is the God over the Nile. He is the true God of life. You look at the frogs. Heket was another fertility goddess who had the head of the frogs. But we see that the frogs are the lords to command. They come up from the rivers and canals and they go into the beds and into the ovens. Pharaoh's magicians we see in these first two plagues, they replicate these uh, plagues. They go and find some more water that hadn't turned to blood yet and they turn it to blood. They're Like, hey, look, we can do that too. Not a whole river, we got a little bit of water. Here's some more frogs that we can produce. But notice that as Pharaoh's magicians replicate the miracles, they just make the situation worse. They just brought more frogs and ruined more clean water. They didn't have the power to reverse what God had done. They just had the ability to offer a cheap counterfeit. Until eventually you get to the third plague with the gnats and they get to the end. They go, listen, we can't do it anymore. This is the finger of God. And the rest of them, they don't try to replicate God stands above the magicians in Pharaoh's court as well. Oh, we see the plague with the livestock. The bull was another symbol of fertility in Egypt and had shrines and temples throughout the land. The bull god Apis was worshipped in Memphis. Anubis was worshipped at Heliopolis. And Hathor was the goddess of love. And she had the head of a cow. But none of them could stand against the plague that God brought on the livestock. Sekhmet is the lion-headed goddess of plagues. In Egypt, that should have been expected to be able to stop the boils that were spreading throughout Egypt. And yet, she stood powerless before the God of Israel. Newt was the sky goddess. This could prevent the plague of hail, but couldn't redirect the east wind, which brought the locusts. And again, stood powerless before God. And finally, we see Ray. Ray was the great sun god of Egypt, the strongest of all the gods in Egypt believed to um, sail across the celestial sea each day in a boat as the sun went across the sky before descending into the netherworld and rising triumphantly with every morning as a new day dawns. But the ninth plague showed that he did not rise. And those three days of darkness were a clear sign that there was a greater power in Egypt now. That even the sun god Ray had to obey this God of Israel. And ultimately, we see in the 10th plague, the death of the firstborn, that Pharaoh, who believed himself to be the incarnation of Ra here on earth, couldn't even pre- prevent the death of his own firstborn son. And it was now clear the gods of Egypt had been defeated. And these slaves of Egypt, these people from Israel, these Hebrews, worshipped the one true God, Yahweh, the great I Am. Friends, here's one thing that we need to walk away with as we read this, as we see God revealing his power over the kings and the idols and the gods of this world. None of them hold a candle to God here. There's not even like a slowing down of God's power or his plan. He's not up there going, okay, uh, ready to turn the the day into darkness. Sun God Ray has got no chance. Oh man, Ray's got some power. He's been lifting this past few months. I don't know what I'm going to do here. Let me figure out a different plan to try to overcome him. There's no hesitation with God. Each of these plagues revealing he is the one true God over all of the earthly powers and all of the gods and idols of this world. And friends, here's one thing I think for us, at least for me this week, sitting in this truth that I walk away with in my life today, is I see that the God in Exodus is the same God that we serve and we worship today. And here's what that means. There can be a danger in my own heart. Maybe you're just a better Christian than I am, which is probably true. Maybe you're just a better Christian than I am, and you trust God and His power. But there there are parts of me that as I look around the world, I begin to get concerned. And there are times when I can begin to be afraid. I look at my kids and think about what world will they grow up in, Will there be ideologies in this world that will grab their heart and pull them away from God? How powerful it feels like these forces are outside of the church, pressing us in right now. Or we see things happening around the world and we begin to look at them and begin to be afraid. I don't know in my heart, I would assume in yours as well. And here's what I realized looking at God's power here in Exodus chapter 7 through 11. That there is no ideology, there is no political party, and there is no country or king or dictator or emperor who can stand before our holy God. That there is nothing that will slow down his will or his plan, and there is no uncertainty with him. There is no anxiety with him, there's only plans. And to see his power demonstrated here in Exodus is the same power that he holds today. There is no concern in heaven. He stands working out his will throughout all of this world. And we can lean and trust in this God because he's the same God of his people today. And so we can see and trust and grow confident and safe in the wings of the Almighty because he is working just today as he did then. As we see, he is the one true God. And he plays this out again, making sure that we see he's the one true God then in three different facets throughout these, throughout these plagues. that He's the one true God seen as he is also the mighty creator. This is our second point. He is the mighty creator. As God is showing his power here, he's unleashing what he has at his disposal to be able to show it. I think about when I was growing up, one of my favorite TV shows was the old TV series Batman with Adam West, Burt Ward that ran from 1966 to 1968. Only three years, but it felt like there was like two million episodes. Anyway, outstanding show. AMI ranked it the 82nd greatest television series of all time. There that is. But if you ever watched it, there were these uh, moments where it seemed like Batman always would reach into his utility belt to pull out exactly what he needed. And sometimes he had the most ridiculous stuff in his utility belt, but it was always there. And so whatever villain he was fighting, whatever he was situation he was in, he'd pull out a grappling hook, he'd pull out a, you know, whatever it might, like whatever it might be. My favorite, though, was a moment whenever he and Robin were over the ocean and all of a sudden, a shark leaps up from the ocean and grabs his foot with his teeth. And he's hanging there on the helicopter, about to fall. Is he going to die? Is he not? What's going to happen? Oh, no. And he yells to Robin, quick, Robin, get me the shark repellent bat spray. <laughs> That's a good thing he had that around. Just in case, a shark jumps up and grabs your leg in the middle of the ocean. Sure enough, he gets it, sprays it, shark falls, and when it hits the water, it explodes because it was not only a regular shark, it was an exploding shark. <laughs> but Batman would reach, and always seems to have just the right thing in his utility belt. So that, this, this, I just now in this other situation popped in my head that was somehow more ridiculous. That there was a scene where the Joker and all the villains got this, um, this uh, tool to be able to pull all of the hydration out of government officials that turned them all into powders of dust. But Batman just so happened back in the Batcave to have a rehydrator that could take all these people that had turned into dust and pump the moisture back into them and make them human again. So there there that is. It seemed like he always had just the right thing in his utility belt. Well, friends, as God goes toe-to-toe here with the gods of Egypt, what does he have in his utility belt? What does he reach for in that moment of this battle? And what we see in the plagues is that God marshals the powers of creation against Egypt using weapons that only a creator could use. As he uses not just a demonstration of his power, but he uses creation as a whole. And so, with some of the plagues, we are told where the plagues originate from. You go back and look at this it says, The frogs came from the waters, Exodus 8, verse 6. The gnats came from the dust of the ground. Exodus 8, verse 16 and 17. And the hail and the darkness came from the sky. Exodus 9, verses 22 and 23. And Exodus 10, verse 21 and 22. That in many ways, God is unraveling here His good creation that we see back in Genesis 1 and 2. And sending it into reverse Water no longer brings life. Animals no longer serve humans, but invade like armies or drop dead in a field. Light returns to darkness and life is brought to dust. And there's no rehydrator around to be able to bring it back. Creation is heading back into chaos and void as Egypt is being unmade. And the idea is clear here that God is employing all of creation, land, sea, and sky, And by the end, even life and light are extinguished to show his power over creation to use it according to his will. His power is revealed as he is the God of creation. And every animal, every ripple of water, every single gust of wind, and every drop of rain is directed by the wisdom of his will and the power of his hand. For this is truly his world. As so we think of the, the, the hymn writer wrote, This is my father's world. Oh, let me never forget that though the wrong seems off so strong that God is the ruler yet. This is my father's world. Why should my heart be sad? The Lord is king. Let the heavens ring. God reigns. Let the earth be glad. Friends, he is not only the one true God. He is the God of creation. And this is his world. And we can trust that everything happening here in this world is happening as a result of what he is doing. And the plan that he is bringing forth. And we can trust him because he is the king of kings. He is the mighty creator. We see him as the one true God, not only as the mighty creator, but also as the holy judge. The holy judge is the other thing we see then within these plagues, as God is is teaching us and teaching Exodus, the people in Egypt and Israel, that this is a judgment brought specifically against Pharaoh and against the people of Egypt. That is what we saw last week in Exodus 7, verse 5. God says that I will stretch out my hand against Egypt. There's a sense of judgment that God brings against Egypt, both Pharaoh and uh, Egypt's actions, is living as a rebellious people. And we talked a lot about last week about what it means that God hardened Pharaoh's heart, that his heart was hard, that Pharaoh hardened his own heart. What did that mean? Listen, it's important to note it's not like Pharaoh was this awesome dude and then God stepped in and hardened his heart. Pharaoh was awful. Not only that, but probably he was in the courts of Egypt whenever the proclamation was made at the beginning of Exodus for every uh, son, every newborn son to be murdered. He probably signed off on that policy. And the people of Egypt were no different as they carried out this command. They were a rebellious people and they, need, they deserved then the judgment that God was bringing against them. And some people sometimes blush at this. They go, oh, and sometimes it can be distinguished like this. Well, that's the Old Testament God doing that judgment, just wrath kind of stuff. I like the New Testament God, the one that's merciful, like Jesus. I like Jesus, not the Old Testament God, but Jesus. And it's almost like people pit the two against one another. You've got the Old Testament version of God, and then you have Jesus. they are two different people. I like Jesus more. He's nice. He's kind, gentle, lowly. That's the God for me. But friends, when when I hear that, it just makes my skin crawl for a number of reasons. One of them being that we are not reading the entirety of the Old Testament, and we have a wrong image of who Jesus is. Because people say they love the New Testament vision of Jesus. And I go, listen, read Revelation. Jesus is in Revelation too. And let me tell you how he's described in Revelation chapter 1. Verse 13 to 17. John has this revelation and he sees among the lampstands was one like the Son of Man, sees Jesus, dressed in a robe with a golden sash wrapped around his chest. The hair of his head was white as wool, white as snow, and his eyes like a fiery flame. His feet were like fine bronze as if fired in a furnace and his voice like the sound of cascading waters. He had seven stars in his right hand and a sharp double-edged sword coming out of his mouth and his face was shining like the sun at full strength. And here's John's response when he sees Jesus, the Jesus whom he knew. While Jesus walked the earth, John said, when I saw him, I fell at his feet like a dead man. Because Jesus was coming to bring his own back to him, but he was also coming to judge those who were still in their sin. That Jesus is the savior of his people, but he's the judge of the world. And there is judgment that he is bringing. This is what, how Jesus is described in Acts chapter 10, verse 42, 1 Peter 4:5, 5, 2 Timothy 4:1. Paul writes it this way, I solemnly charge you before God and Christ Jesus, who is going to judge the living and the dead. That Jesus is described as the judge of the living and the dead when he comes again. This is why in the Apostles Creed it says that. We believe in Jesus who will come to judge the living and the dead. Because when he returns, he will bring his people home and judge those still left in his sin. And friends, that will not be an experience that we will enjoy for anyone still in their sin. As he is bringing salvation, but Jesus also brings judgment. And we see those themes of salvation and judgment, not just in Revelation or the New Testament. But again, it's right here in Exodus as God is seen as a holy judge, bringing a holy judgment against a rebellious people. We don't need to try to make excuses for the judgment of God. God being just is a good thing. If God just let evil go by unpunished, he's not a good judge. And for each of us that have sinned against him, we all deserve that punishment. And that judgment is coming. And we don't need to shy away from it or make excuses for it. It is who God is and is worthy of being praised. And not only that, here in Egypt do we see that this judgment that was brought against Egypt... In, verse, in chapter 9, verse 8 of Exodus, we have this interesting detail about the plague of the boils and where they came from. Look at chapter 9, verse 8. It says that it came, told, God told Moses, get a handful of furnace soot and throw it in the air. Then it will spread throughout and it will fall and cause people to have boils. So if you've ever seen LeBron James play basketball, he gets the, the chalk before the game and kind of throws it up in the air. That's kind of what I imagine happening here in Exodus chapter 9. They get the handfuls of furnace soot and they just throw it up in the air. Now what's happening there? What an odd way to begin a plague. Well, This furnace is the, a brick kiln where the Egyptians and the Israelites would make fire and they would make bricks, be able to build whatever construction they had. These very kilns were the ones that the Israelite slaves would have worked so hard to try to hit their quota. Earlier, if Pharaoh told them in chapter 5 to produce bricks without any straw. If they didn't meet it, then they'd get punished. And friends, this kiln here in chapter 9, verse 8, was the very source of Israel's oppression, and it is now the very source of Egypt's judgment. That the punishment for them was fitting the crime. As this judgment brought against Egypt, again, it was in response to their rebellion. As this here with the boils was the first plague that was against the Egyptians personally. Up to this point, it was gnats and flies and frogs and Nile. But now a plague hit them individually. And it originated from their own oppression, their own sin, and their own rebellion. God wants to make it known that he is the one true God. He is the mighty creator. He is a holy judge and will not let sin go unpunished. But we also see in these ten plagues, that he is the merciful Savior. The merciful Savior. As this judgment falls in Egypt, through the first three plagues especially, Israel is going through the same stuff. They're impacted by the Nile. They're impacted by these first few plagues, the frogs, the gnats. But then in the fourth plague, God tells them, hey, by the way, also Israel, here now is a place that you can go. To be able to find safety and protection. In chapter 8, verse 22 and 23, here's what God says. On that day I will give special treatment to the land of Goshen where my people are living. No flies will be there. This way you will know that I, the Lord, am in the land and I will make a distinction between my people and your people. God is drawing a line and saying, people of Israel, if you then listen and go to the land of Gershon you won't experience these plagues that are coming. No flies, no death. There's still light there we see in the ninth plague. As God then makes an exception and makes a way for them to be saved from the judgment. Now, why did God do that? Why did God look at Israel and go, hey, you guys, I will give you a way to escape this judgment. Was it because God looked at him and said, boy, they're just doing a lot better than the Egyptians. They are, they are great. I, I really want them to like me. So let me, let me try to make a way here for them to be saved and for them to worship me. Was there something that God saw in the people of Israel that made him then want to show mercy to them? Because again, what we've seen up to this point, the Israelites are already fickle, right? If you've grown up, grown up in the church, you know how the Israelites act in the wilderness. They're already doing that. They were all on board early on in chapter 4. And then Pharaoh was like, hey, bricks without straw. And they're like, oh, yeah, never mind. Moses, can you leave? Let's get God away from us. They're already doing that. But God is here making a way for them. Why? That God not only makes a way for Israel to be spared from judgment, even judgment that they would deserve as they had rebelled against God, but he makes a way for them. He also draws them out of their slavery. He also brings them to himself. He also adopts them as as his children. And we see that his mercy is multiplied to these people, that it is truly grace upon grace that he shows them. Why did he do it? Why did they receive this mercy? When we read it last week, and it's worth going back to again in Romans chapter 9. Paul goes back and quotes Exodus 9. It's right in the middle of where we are. And he puts it this way in verses 14 to 18. What should we say then? Is there injustice with God? Absolutely not. For he tells Moses, I will show mercy to whom I will show mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. So then, it does not depend on human will or effort, but on God. Who shows mercy. For the scriptures tell Pharaoh, I raised you up for this reason, so that I may display my power in you, and that my name may be proclaimed in the whole earth. So then he has mercy on whom he wants to have mercy, and he hardens whom he wants to harden. Why did God show mercy to Israel? Friends, they were shown mercy not because of merit in them, but because of mercy in God. Why? to go back and quote Paul in 9.16, because it does not depend on human will or effort, but on God who shows mercy. Friends, if you are a Christian right now in here, it is not because of your effort. It is not because of your motivation. It is not because of your will or your desire or your motives. It is because of mercy from first to last. For there is nothing that we deserve from God except punishment and judgment for our sin and our rebellion against, against him. But God being rich in love has given us a way to be able to be saved from the judgment that's coming for us if we then would go and hide ourselves not in Gershom but in Christ. I find it so interesting because in Exodus, God could have just said, here are the plagues, I'm going to make sure they don't happen to Israel. But he doesn't do that, does he? Does he? He tells them, here is where you have to go in order to be saved. Here's where you have to go to find safety. And they had to then respond in obedience and faith, believing God's promise and responding to it. For it's the same for us. God has made a way for us to escape the judgment that's coming from our sin, that each and every one of us will one day stand before the judge of the living and the dead. There will be no one else with us. Not our pastor, not our parents, not our friends. It will be us and the judge. And what will you say on that day? What right will you have? As he looks at you and says, why should I let you in? What will you answer? One of my favorite pastors, Alistair Begg, put it this way. He said, if any of us answer in the first person, we've missed it. Because I, because I, because I've done this. Because I've gone to church most of my life. Because I think that the good outweighs the bad in my life. So I think that I deserve to give in. I, try, I tried my best. That's why I think I should get in. Jesus says this in Matthew chapter 7 in the great sermon on the mount. He said, many will stand before me and say, Lord, Lord, did I not do all these things? I, I, I. My friends, the great response of Christians doesn't answer in the first person. It answers in the second. Because he Why should I let you in? Because of he, because of what he has done. Because he died in my place. And all of the punishment and sin for my... For, uh, for what I deserved has been placed on him. And he died in my place, absorbing the wrath of God that was meant for me. He drank the cup for me. So then I could then have his life and his righteousness and his joy and his hope. And it's because of what he has done that our ability to enter into heaven is mercy. It's nothing that we have done by human will or human effort. It is all God. He is the merciful Savior. And one of the things that's just so encouraging to me is I know if there's nothing I've done to earn my salvation, I know that there is nothing I can do to lose it. That he is holding us fast. And the work that he began in us, Philippians 1.6, he will carry it on until the day of completion whenever we stand before our Lord then. And we will stand before Jesus, not trembling as we stand before our judge but enjoy as we finally face-to-face stand before our merciful Savior. For as this man named Moses stood before the authority of this earth seen in Egypt with a piece of wood, his staff, and he delivered God's people from slavery through judgment and mercy, culminating as the day unnaturally darkened and the firstborn sons would die. But friends, there would be a greater prophet than Moses that would come to Israel centuries later. And he would also stand before the authorities of this earth, seen in Rome, standing before Pilate. And he would have a different piece of wood with him. And he would deliver God's people from their slavery to sin and death through judgment that was poured out on him in our place as he extends mercy to all those who would trust him. That day we see also culminated in three hours of unnatural darkness and the death of God's firstborn son. That Jesus Christ, God the Son, hung on the cross and was unmade, experiencing darkness, judgment, wrath, and death, so that all those who would trust and follow him will be met instead, not with what we deserve, but with the riches of heaven that we've been given in Christ. Mercy, grace, adoption, hope, and life eternal. That his death leads to your life that he was forsaken so that you could be forgiven, that he was unmade so that you could be remade. And friends, we saw in Egypt the only safe place was Goshen. And for us, the only safe place from the just judgment of our sin is found in Christ. That he is the one true God, the mighty creator, the holy judge, and the merciful savior. To quote the apostles in Acts chapter 4, that there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to people by which we must be saved. Friends, may that name that was revealed in Exodus and was crucified in the gospels, May that name now through us be proclaimed in Claremont and South Lake County and to the ends of the earth. And may we see him as he truly is, the one true God, the King of Kings, our King forevermore. Let's pray. God, we praise you again as the God of glory, the God of might, the God of power, and the God who moved heaven and earth to rescue your people. So Lord, we live in light of who you are, that we would see you in your holiness and your glory and your beauty and your splendor and your majesty, that we would see the judgment that's coming for everyone that stays in their sin, but Lord, that we would also see the mercy and the grace, the forgiveness and the love that you have invited and expressed and held out to anyone who would turn to you. God, would we live in light of that truth? Would we trust you in your power? Lord, we live in light of the judgment that's coming. And God, would we also live today in view of your mercies as we then offer ourselves as living sacrifices. Lord, we love you and we thank you for the grace you've shown us. And it's the power of Jesus' name we pray. Amen.